week we read Jesus' teaching about our tendency to treasure the things of earth rather than fixing our eyes solely on the treasures of heaven. We talked about treasuring the treasures of heaven or treasuring the treasures of earth. I kept thinking this week, why do we do that? Why, do, why does Jesus have to tell us to fix our eyes only on God? Why isn't that natural? automatic. Why is it that Jesus has to tell us not to worry as he does in this passage? Why don't we trust God instinctively and impulsively? Our impulse is to seek after the things of earth and then to hang on to them with a tight grip. Why is that? Why are we like that? Well, because of sin. The same sin that separated us from God and brought us under condemnation is what continues to lure us away from God even as Christians. Causes us to question His Word. Causes us to doubt His care. Set our gaze on earthly treasures. Even though many of us have come to Christ, and I don't know where you are on that that, uh, perspective, if you consider yourself a Christian of a long time, or maybe... Uh, you, you've recently come to Christ, or maybe you're still uh, sorting all of that out and, and figuring out where you stand on these things. One thing is for sure, we are all still seduced by sin. None of us is immune to the power, temptation, and sin. But if we're going to follow Jesus, we must go against our natural instincts and detach ourselves from this life. And that's what the last passage was speaking on. Teaching us to release our hold on worldly things and live completely devoted to God. Serving God is is more than an hour or two of worship on a Sunday. I'm so glad that you're here this morning. This is not complete service. Serving God is more than doing occasional ministry when called upon. We must live each day in service to Him. Each day, all day. Though others may get to go through life seeking after pleasures and serving other masters, if we are going to follow Jesus, we must, as He said, take up our cross. Think about that for a moment. The cross is the end of my life. We put it on necklaces. We hang it up in the wall, we, 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 we love the cross. We sing about the cross. But go back to the days of the Roman occupation in Jerusalem. The cross was not a, a beautiful symbol. It was a symbol of death. a symbol of the end. And carrying a cross, as Jesus said, means that there's no coming back from this. You can't pick up your cross every once in a while. The cross is final. Following Jesus means death to myself and a totally new life. Complete surrender and service to Him. That's what Paul meant when he wrote in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. At the thought of death to self, as I'm dwelling on this in my own and 
no doubt even as I speak these words, as you hear them and as I'm hearing myself say them, that sinful fleshly nature within each of us rises up, resists it, and asks the question, well, if I'm going to serve God, who's going to take care of me? How is my life going to be any good if I surrender all and serve Him? I want to have a good life on earth. I bet you do too. I want to be comfortable and enjoy the things that everybody else seems to get to enjoy. And this tempts me to turn from God and turn to the God of wealth. Or as verse 24 there says, the God of mammon and make it my master. After all, the servant depends on his master for his needs. And wealth promises me the good life. Think about it. The good life costs money. And the more money you have, the gooder your life will be. All you need is a little more cash. If I serve money, I will work hard and do whatever it takes to see that my needs are met, my desires are satisfied, and my dreams are achieved. I will devote my time and energy and make sacrifices at the altar of this Master so that I may receive His greatest blessings. Money's not a good master. It promises peace, but never delivers. It offers a temporary happiness, but not lasting joy. I remember my dad's a pastor, and I remember hearing these things, and if you grow up in a pastor's home, you, you have to get the sermon more than on Sunday, and you hear it throughout the week, and uh, as my boys can attest to. And, and I remember uh, being told... Uh, well, money can't buy happiness. And I remember my dad telling me that, and I said, Dad, give me 20 bucks and watch me smile. Money buys happiness, but it doesn't last. We never really do have enough, do we? It always leaves us wanting more. It entices us by promising satisfaction of having whatever our hearts desire, but even Solomon, who was the richest king of all Israel, realized and wrote that it has the tendency to grow wings and fly away, always just out of reach, keeping satisfaction and contentment just ahead, tempting us to try a little bit harder, work a little bit longer, and sacrifice just a little bit more to obtain it. If you try to serve money or chase after wealth, you'll find, as Jesus said, that it leads to worry. Anxiety, as the language that we read here in our Bibles here, taking thoughts, leads us to ask questions like, like this. Do, do I have enough money saved up? How can I get more? Am I making enough money at this job that I have to provide for my needs? How many more hours do I really need so I can get ahead or get set? How many more raises do I need to achieve my desired standard of living? Will this job last long enough until then, or do I need to start looking for something better? How will, how will the economy affect my way of life? What will the stock market do to my retirement fund? What about inflation? What about these other countries? What about our president? What about retirement? Will I even ever be able to retire? Social security and all of these things. Now, if one serves God, he or she is still going to have the same needs and even some, many of the same desires. You'll go to work 
and your earned money, just like everybody else does. But the difference here is that this person doesn't depend on a paycheck to take care of him. This is a woman or a man who is not counting on a raise to meet their needs. They are detached from wealth and devoted to God. They trust Him to care for them and meet their needs. When we serve God, that means we do what He wants. It means we fulfill His desires. And then we trust Him to provide. Now, Jesus knows our faithless and sinful hearts. And in this passage here, we see that He responds to these doubts really without even waiting for us to answer the, ask the question. He knows that we're prone to trust in our riches, earthly treasures, and He tells us not to worry about such things. And this worry could be anywhere from emotional anxiety, which is basically a fear and apprehension of what may be, but it could also manifest itself in the motivation for work. Why do you go to work? We can labor out of a worry to provide for ourselves and our family and future, being fearful, eventually overwhelmed or driven to despair at what the cares of this life bring us. I've got to work more because I've got to pay the bills and I've got to have the better life and provide. And, and, and out of a worry, we, we motivate ourselves to work. Whether it is as extreme as anxious thoughts or we can downgrade it to something as just a daily concern of life, worry is sin. Worry should not be the response of the Christian. Robert Mounts said it this way, worry is practical atheism and an affront to God. And Jesus tells us here in our passage, don't be anxious about your life, where these things are going to come from. Instead, He directs us to trust God. And as His followers, we should fully devote ourselves to Him and be confident that He will meet every need within His perfect will and timing. Now, if you're, if you're like me, I don't know if you're like me or not, but uh, I am, I'm constantly grabbing these other phrases from our recent studies. And, and if you, and as you do that, it really begins to tie in this message together. I'll try to pull out some of them as we go along. God has a very impressive track record of providing for those in His care. The pages of Scripture are filled with testimonies of God's providence and God's great and gracious provision and care. The truth is, we can trust God. In fact, as we begin to understand the awesome power of God, as we begin to grasp His incredible grace and kindness, we realize that no one and no thing can take care of you like God can take care of you. And in this short passage, we see Jesus gives us several reasons why we can rely on Him. It's very similar to what I showed you last week. All we really should get is the command, don't do it. But instead, He gives us the command and several reasons why we should do it God's way. Or for in this instance, why we shouldn't worry. Look in verse number 25, please. He gives us first some logical reasons. In verse 25, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, 
nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. And it's all in a series of questions here. And that's what I want to point out to you each time as we get to them. Is not the life more than meat in the body, more than raiment? Is not life more than food? And isn't your body more than clothes? Eugene Peterson wrote, Life is more than mealtime, or what clothes you wear today. Jesus is saying that we were created for more than just eating food and wearing clothes. Is that the sum of your existence? To get up and eat. Now, I love eating. That's one of my favorite pastimes. I do it often, as often as I can. Um, But that's not why I was created, to consume food. And I like having nice clothes. I appreciate the fact that you wear clothes. But that's not why you were created to wear clothes. Because think about it, when God created man, He didn't make him with clothes. That's not our life. Don't reduce your life to such minor things as food and clothes. Yeah, these things are important. But God didn't create you solely for those reasons. Food and clothes are provided to minister to us as we fulfill our purpose within our master's plan. The next thing he directs us to is he directs our attention to the sky in verse 26. Behold, the fowls of the air. They sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Next question. Are you not much better than they? Look at the birds. They don't plant. They don't harvest. They don't store up into barns. Yet your Father cares for them. And notice, He says, your Father cares for them, not their Father. Because they are God's creation, just like all of us are, but only we have the unique privilege and opportunity to call Him and know Him as both Creator and Father. And it's because we bear God's imprint, because we were made in His image, Jesus reminds us of our worth. And He he says, don't you surpass them. That's what it means there. Aren't you much more than them? Don't you surpass them in worth and value? Aren't you much better than they are? They are simply God's creation and, and God faithfully cares for them, yet we're much more valuable to Him than they are. Will He not then show the same amount of care to us, if not more? Verse 27, he continues with the third rhetorical question. Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto a statue? Essentially, he's saying, what can worry do? Can worry do any good whatsoever? Who can add a single cubit to his stature by worry? The word stature here is is used a lot throughout the Scriptures to describe either maturity in years or maturity in size. Now, a cubit is simply a unit of measurement, and and, and it is roughly one and a half feet. There's the length of your forearm there. And some would interpret this or understand this as who through worry and anxiety can add a single cubit to his height. Now, this is, of course, impossible to do, but it would be impressive if I could will myself to grow a, a foot and a half. I remember as a kid, I wanted to be able to dunk a basketball, and I knew that my current height and weight was going to keep me from doing that. And so, uh, for a very brief period of my time, I would hang from the monkey bars. Until I realized that would only make my arms longer. That wasn't going to make my body longer. 
It would be impressive if you could do that, but it's impossible. But others would interpret this as who through worry can add a single hour to their lifespan. And even if that were possible, that would be of little consequence. To add one hour to your entire life, what good would that do? Even if it could be done, which it can't. But either way, it helps us to understand Jesus' point that worry doesn't help anything. Worry doesn't do anyone any good. And amazingly, we do it an awful lot, don't we? Why is that? Why do we worry about things that are out of our control? And he focuses on the clothing aspect down in verse number 28. Why take ye thought for raiment? Clothing. He continues his questioning with an illustration here about wildflowers, about these lilies. He says, why do you worry about clothing, what you're going to wear? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He's saying, uh, think about the lilies. They, They don't toil. Referring to the men's work of that day in the field, working to get the things that they need. But neither do lilies spin. Referring to a woman working in the at her home or in the in a, in a shop somewhere, spinning wool into thread to make her clothes. The lilies don't do either of these things, and yet God clothes them in beauty and splendor. And He refers to Solomon here. But think about this: every flower, even the ones we don't see, are covered and beautifully adorned by God Himself. We only see. A very small fraction of the one. Have you ever come across a flower that didn't get blessed by God? God, Oh, well, well, I'm not going to take care of those way out in the middle of the field because no one will ever see those. It still blesses those and dresses those. And not even Solomon was as finely dressed as they are. Now, Solomon was viewed as the epitome of wealth and riches. Now, remember at this point in time, uh, no one had a first-hand understanding of what Solomon wore. You can read in 1 Kings all about the wealth and the great immensity of his, of his power and wealth and wisdom. All about Solomon there, but it doesn't necessarily describe his clothes. But it's, it's, it, it's, it's, it's not a stretch to, to, to believe that, uh, the, the, the way that the scripture was described, uh, uh the way that the scripture described his wealth in the, in the Old Testament, would have led these people to believe that Solomon's wealth was unequal. His dress was unequal. No one looked as good. No one was as fashionable. No one was as trendy as King Solomon. And Jesus says, every flower in the field is more beautifully dressed than King Solomon. Jesus said, if God so beautifully and incomparably clothes flowers and grass, which are both short-lived and largely unnoticed, talking about uh, going into today it is here and tomorrow it is thrown into the oven. Won't He much more care for our clothes? Psalm 104 is a wonderful song of praise to God for the care that He provides all of His creation. And in it, the writer describes how everything uh, relies on God for its existence. Listen to these verses. I'll just read a few of them. Verse 13 says, He watereth the hills from His chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of Thy works. He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle, and herb for the service of man, that He may bring forth food out of the earth. 
and wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he hath planted, where the birds make their nests. As for the stork, the fir trees are her house. The high hills are a refuge for the wild goats, and the rocks for the conies. Verse 21 says, The young lions roar after their prey and seek their meat from God. Verse 27 says, These wait all upon thee, that thou mayest give them their meat in due season, that thou givest them they gather. Thou openest thine hand, they are filled with good. Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created and thou renewest the face of the earth. You see, the care and attention that God shows to the less significant things like flowers and birds reveals the degree and attention that God has for the things and the people He deems more valuable and more meaningful. In other words, the splendor of the insignificant, unnoticed, and momentary urges us to trust that God will care for uh, for much more for what he deems significant, what is made in his image, and what is eternal. We must ask ourselves a question. What does God consider valuable and significant? For what did God pay the highest price? Well, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.18 that we are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. In Ephesians, Paul wrote to us that Christ loved the church so much that He gave Himself for it. I read to you from Galatians just a moment ago. And he loved me and gave Himself for me. God values the sinful people for whom He sent His only begotten Son to suffer and die in their place. He considers these fallen men and women significant and worthy of redemption through the shed blood of Christ. Friends, if God considers us worth the high price, worthy enough to pay the price to take our guilt and our blame and our shame on Himself to redeem us to Himself, tell me, what more must He do to prove He will care for what we eat and wear? I compare those two things. It sounds so trivial to worry about what am I going to eat? He paid for my sins. Well, what am I going to wear? He shed His blood and gave me new life. Well, what's for dinner? It doesn't compare. But next, He gives us in verse 30 to 33, He gives us spiritual reasons why we should not worry. It really it begins at the end of verse 30 when He says, Shall He not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? There are logical reasons why we should not worry, and there are spiritual reasons as well. He, he declares here that worry is a sign of little faith. It's the result of a lack of faith. Worry ignores God, choosing not to trust Him, trusting something inferior. Worry in Matthew 14 is what caused Peter to take his eyes off of Christ and focus on the storm instead of his Savior. And though the little faith he did have was enough to get him out of a boat in the middle of a storm and start walking on water, it was worry and fear 
that cause them to doubt and sink. Even our own prayers are affected by worry. If you remember the Lord's Prayer, the one line in there, give us this day our daily bread. If we pray as Jesus instructed us to, we will look to God for our daily bread. But this means that we rely on Him to supply our every need in His perfect timing. How can I pray that way if I don't believe God will take care of me in the first place? Notice that Jesus gives us here four spiritual reasons why we should not pray. He says, number one, because you were different in verse 32. For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. I, I want to point out and highlight the, the, the use of this little phrase, all these things. You'll see it several times as we go down. All these things do the Gentiles seek. He tells us not to worry about our basic needs because the Gentiles devote themselves to the pursuit of all these things. And when he, when he talks about Gentiles here, he's talking about the, the pagan world. He's talking about the heathen, the people that don't know the true God. They're the people that don't know God as their Father. They have no Father in heaven, and they're the ones who pray these prayers of, 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 of length and verbosity and yet have zero effect. They're the ones that seek after all these things. Even so, doesn't God bless those who don't know Him? Doesn't God care for those who don't serve Him? After all, Matthew 5.45 says that He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We're different. We know God, therefore we should not worry. But also, we are known by God. Several times Jesus refers to God as your Father. And here, again, He says, your Father knows that you already uh, need these things. Even before I come to Him in prayer, God uh, knows what I need. He is an attentive, He is a compassionate Father. He's known us intimately and has made Himself known to us through His Word and through His Spirit. You need not worry. You're different. You are known. But number three, Jesus says we should not be worried because we should be preoccupied. Verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. In other words, we should be so busy seeking God's kingdom and God's righteousness that we're too busy to worry about our own needs and desires. This is exactly how Jesus taught us to pray when we say, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. Now we put feet to those prayers and we make the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God our primary objective in life. And Jesus doesn't just tell us not to worry here. Rather, He replaces it with the positive action of seeking something else. The Gentiles seek all these things, but you seek first the kingdom of God. And we see in the fourth thing, when we seek after God and His righteousness, we can be confident that the necessary details of life will be met. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. We will be sustained. Jesus doesn't trivialize the importance of food and clothing. These things are necessary to our existence. Without food, you will die. Without clothes, you will uh, be cold and, 
and eventually die. Uh, the clothes protect us, clothes cover us, food uh, feeds us and, and sustains us. And Jesus doesn't trivialize the importance of these things. Yet, at the same time, He tells the Christian not to be focused on these things, but rather to focus on greater things concerning God's kingdom. He says the Gentiles seek after all these things, but if you seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness, then all these things will be added to you. God will sustain us. Currently, I'm reading a, a, an autobiography of a woman uh, uh, who tells the story of her conversion to Christ. And in it, she describes a time when she was just going through a, an incredible heartbreak and, and, and real big loss uh, very shortly after her conversion. And she describes that she didn't really know how to handle this. And one day as she was at church, one of the elders came to her and asked her this question, has God sustained you? And I thought about that for a moment. I thought, well, yeah, of course. God sustained her. But he asked her that question. And I first thought, what a question of doubt. Would God sustain her? But it was to get her to understand, have you been sustained? Because, yeah, things aren't great. Things aren't bright and sunny right now. But I've made it this far. Take stock of our life and realize God has sustained me. And then it leads to the question, how has God sustained me? How has God taken care of me? And it hasn't been what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, it was a bumpy road, but I got down the road. How has God sustained me? Christian testimonies of God's sustaining grace can be powerful things. And I'm not talking just about your testimony of salvation, but as we share with one another the things that God has done into our lives, and one of the beautiful things about heartache and about heartbreak and about tragedy and troubles that we deal with in life is that we get to experience firsthand God's sustaining grace. They can be encouragements and reminders to everybody that we can trust God to take care of us, even in life's darkest days. Finally, in verse 34, he gives us a practical reason not to worry. He says, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, or tomorrow, for tomorrow will take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Jesus tells us not to worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow represents the future as the whole. And he says, tomorrow will worry for itself. Today has enough of its own evils. Or as Charles Quarles put it, a day's trouble is enough for a day. Don't borrow from tomorrow's trouble. Today's got plenty. Let me read to you from a pastor, I think a hundred years ago, William Hendrickson, or maybe not so long ago. He wrote, today has been given to us on this day, therefore, we should, out of gratitude, do what God demands of us. As to tomorrow, let that rest. Allow it to be anxious for itself. When tomorrow arrives, there will be new troubles, but also renewed strength. God has not given us strength today for tomorrow's difficulties. When we reflect on the fact that each day is enough trouble all by itself, let us also be immediately reminded of Lamentations 3, which says, His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And as troubling as today is, and tomorrow might be, God will take care of you. You can trust Him. But don't think, as this verse implies to us, that because you trust in God, 
or because you are sustained by Him, that life is going to be sunshine and roses. That life will be trouble-free. Each day will be filled it's to its full with evil. There are forces at work in this world that fight against God and oppose all those who would follow Him. Yet, we have no need to fear because we have a Father whom we can trust. Isaiah wrote in chapter 12, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust, will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. You never get to know God as your salvation until you have a need for saving. Read from Hendrickson again, lack of trust in God, that is fervish anxiety, defies all reason. For it barters away heavenly for earthly treasures, the imperishable for the perishable, forgets that it cannot even add one cubit to a person's lifespan, borrows tomorrow's troubles as if today's were inadequate, and worst of all, refuses to consider that if even as Creator, God feeds the birds and clothes the lilies, then certainly, as Heavenly Father, He will care for His children. God is able to take care of you. If He feeds the birds and dresses the lilies, are we not much more valuable than they? You, you trust God with your eternal soul. And you not trust Him with your hunger? You, you trust Him with, with, with eternity and the life that is to come. Can we not trust Him with the simple cares of this life? The cares of this life are going to lead us to worry or to trust. Your cares are important. We don't minimize them. They represent things that are vital and necessary to life and existence. But they are not to be the primary aim of the Christian. So trust God. Cast your cares upon Him. He cares for you. In your time of need, come boldly to the throne of grace. And there find mercy and help from your Father. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Why? Because Isaiah says that the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. Jesus said that when we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then all these things will be added to you. Psalm 9 verse 10 says this, They that know Thy name will put their trust in Thee. For Thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek Thee. Friend, trust God. He is able to take care of you. Trust me.